0: book cave today we're interviewing award-winning australian author claire saxby claire welcome to the book cave thank you it's lovely to be here. great to have you claire's an award-winning author of children's books fiction non-fiction and poetry so claire very interested in your wonderful range of books you've written a good number and uh, obviously very successful uh, published both in australia and internationally
1: yes. how did you begin i I began with a six week course about trying to help children learn to read in the classroom. Um, We had been doing that as a parent group for some time, and the education department decided that we needed to be trained to do this. So they did this, set up this six week course. And at the end of that, the teacher who was running it said, I think you better go and do something else. Oh. And I think I did too much homework. Um, and I think I put my hand up too much in class. <laughs> and so I did. So you could sort of say I came at it totally accidentally.
0: Wow. So mm-hmm. there's something else was writing.
1: Yeah. Was that what she meant you to do? Uh, he, yes. He, I beg your pardon. Yes. you, you thought I should investigate um, story. Okay. Um. So your first book? My first book was uh, an educational reader called Banana Beard and the Bowler Buddy.
0: Wonderful, um, great which title.
1: <laughs> came from everyday experiences and then sort of built the story, built around that. So yes, it was for middle primary readers. So- did, was this just a sort of organic thing? You actually discovered in you
0: that you had a, a talent for writing children's stories or did you actually go and do some kind of writing? I did sp-
1: do some classes. Mm-hmm. Um, I did a, quite a few classes. I thought the first one I did was short story oh. because I thought that short story would be easy, right? <laughs> <laughs> I discovered very quickly that short story is one of the most challenging forms of, of story writing and I was not very good at it. Right, but when I discovered writing for children, it was like I'd come home, Um, and I'd always known there was something apart from what I was doing, and when I did the writing for children, it was like, oh, this is this is what it was meant to be. And
0: so, your sense of writing for children—what is it that um, draws you to that? You say it makes you feel—it made you feel like you were coming home. What is it about writing for
1: children? I think the thing that I like. All through my life I've been interested in all sorts of different things, not mm-hmm. just one. And writing for children allows me to explore all of the parts of me, all of the curiosities that I have. So I want to play with language and for preschool-age children and the rhythm and the rhyme and, and the repetition and have them become – pull to pull them in with the, the magic of the lyricism of the language. And then I want to, with the books for older children, I want them to see the magic that's in these, uh, with the nature story books, to, to see the magic that's in these animals that we know so well yet don't know at all. Mm. Uh, and then with the histories, the discovery of who makes me me and who um, who has helped shape this place I live in mm. and and the people that are around me. Uh, and it allows me to look at all of those things and not be tied down to one particular part. Well, this this certainly comes
0: through very strongly <clears throat> in your books, and uh, I particularly like this uh, <clears throat> My Name is Lizzie Flynn, which is um, a surprising book in so many ways, I have to say. Um, I found it quite unexpected but really endearing and um, interesting and really compelling um, in a way, it, this is for children, what age would you recommend this sort of book for
1: i it's probably its heartland, if you like, is middle primary, yeah, but I so have grades three f- two three four yeah, five yeah yeah, but i I've used it in secondary in <laughs> <Yeah>. secondary <laughs> classrooms i've used it with <clears throat> younger children um, as well. I just alter which elements of what I focus on okay. um, and it's just such a big story, um, the, the quilt I didn't know of. And it's one of Australia's most important textiles. It has a, a story of its own being lost for nearly 150 years. Um, and I followed these pathways uh, in the research to come back to – I was sitting in a library in, um, in Williamstown, um, digging, 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 and discovered that the street on which the library is situated was named for the man who was captain of this ship. Wow. And tingle, tingle, yeah, tingle. Yeah. I, I just got goosebumps. Yeah, and it doesn't belong in the book, but it belongs as part of my story. Um, so there's circles and these, you know, less than six degrees of separation and, uh, you know, the way you find stories and the way stories find you it, like, endlessly fascinating.
0: Oh, I completely agree with that. One of so many of life's serendipitous moments, mm. and it can be that flash in the brain, or it can be an encounter, or a, uh, a, someone says a sentence or a word, and suddenly there's the next book. It's mm. quite extraordinary, isn't it?
1: And that's when you sort of tune out from whatever conversation you're having. Yeah. <laughs> it's very true. And hopefully you come back while the conversation. <laughs> (laughs)
0: I did not know about the Rajah quilt. And it's, of course, named the Rajah quilt because of the ship that it was pieced together on by the convict women. So this is actually a story of convicts. And what I found, one of the things that I found so surprising is that it's actually written in quite a confronting way. So you really, um, and it's quite clearly aimed at children and and obviously is very successfully aimed at Mm. children, But in a way, you don't hold back on the grittiness and the dark times of what these convict women went through. And, of course, Lizzie Flynn is a convict child, a teenager, um, transported for seven years for stealing a
1: shawl. But I actually found that really refreshing. It was quite intentional. Mm -hmm. Um, I think we gloss over the dark parts of our history at our peril. Um, I think... If we want to learn from the experiences of our history, we need to confront them um, and look at them honestly. Mm. And that's what I tried to do, to say this wasn't this wasn't a joy bit, you know, this wasn't a pleasure cruise. No. Um, their lives were not pleasurable in any way. Um, and even making of this quilt would have been seen by some of them as being a Another insult, um because they're making it for someone who had much more than they mm. would ever have, mm. and so that that sense of injustice you know which is represented by one of the characters, is mm. um very much trying to you know while Lizzie herself, who's based on a real character, was um so Lizzie Flynn was actually on the Lizzie Flynn oh, was wasn't just- but a thirteen year old girl oh, was right um and i I didn't want to use a real person because she has descendants. And so I have used her crime, no, not her crime, I have used her age um, and the, her existence yeah, yeah. Uh, as the basis so for the a, story. So it's a kind
0: of an homage to the, to her and to the other women who were transported that time. Yeah. It's it's beautifully written. Thank you. And um, I think very powerful in because it is, because you don't shy away from the dark um and the confronting and the difficult of of that particular part of our history Thank you. you know i think i think that's uh, really wonderful so you actually once said you know i think you have a great attitude towards fear that it's something that we just you know really don't need to shouldn't give time to that we need to move on and that often the fear of the thing is uh much worse than the reality often turns out to be so when you're working uh, on your books for children and working with children, because I know you give a lot of talks in schools, um, in what ways do you think that books help children
1: with fear? They can choose when, they, when it's too much and they can close the book and walk away, um, but they also see resolution. They see uh, successful outcomes. Um, so they see the journey that's modelled for them which hopefully gives them some sort of sense that there will be something beyond this particular fear, Mm. that there will be something beyond it that will be worth pushing through for. Do
0: you find that children open up to you when you give talks in schools or that you...?
1: Yes, yes, although sometimes that can be challenging. There's One of my books is Sea Dog, which is about a a rambunctious dog that loves to get dirty, um, loves to roll in smelly things, and the first time I presented that to a prep classroom, a small child put their hand up and um, my dog died. Oh. oh, that's terribly sad. Another hand up. My dog died too. little prep in the front row puts her hand up. My guinea pig died. Um, so I, I rapidly lost control of it and had to bring it back to, let's look at this healthy live dog. <laughs> um, but you just never know. What will cue a, a conversation um, in young people, and people? Yeah, they come up and they will tell you all sorts of things. So, do you think
0: of books as something that actually is a practical uh, response and help to children who are struggling with with difficult lives, with with fear, with the sorts of things?
1: That- I try very hard not to consciously do that. Mm because I think it would become quite obvious that that's what you're doing. Mm -hmm. I try to shape a story um, that is true to itself um, and that is real, whatever that real means, whether that's, a, um, for example, um, I don't know, um, you know a kangaroo that's making its living over overnight or whether it's a, you know you what know, the Anzac books they're they're not real people, but they're as close to real as they mm-hmm. can be and mm-hmm. they're um, but you try and make them honest, true and honest, and try not to prescribe what it is that someone takes from it because that way madness lies yes, because you can't control what oh. they're bringing to the book. Except with the ANZAC one, I did not want to have any gunshot, and so I stopped. Well, I I, I was going to talk to you about that because I found that
0: absolutely fascinating. Um, I mean, I have here um, two of your wonderful history uh, books. So we have Meet the ANZACs and then Meet Weary Dunlop. And, of course, Weary Dunlop was a very famous Australian of the Second World War, Um, a great... um, a man who I think I think a truly great man, you know, who sacrificed many things to help so many of their soldiers um, and prisoners of war um, during the Japanese occupation of the um, of Singapore and Malaysia and Burma, Siam, and the men who worked on the Burma Siam railway, and um, of which my great uncle was one. Um, but I found it fascinating. The Anzacs is a really interesting book, and not at all, again, what I might have expected. Because it does this wonderful job of telling us the history of how the men went to war in 1914 and 1915. And, of course, a lot of things were not at all what they expected, um, ending up in Egypt and, you know, waiting to actually go into battle. And so you take us all the way with these wonderful illustrations too. They're fabulous. Talk about your illustrators in a minute. Um, You take us all the way. Uh, to the Middle East, uh, to Egypt, to Cairo, um, and you take us eventually to the Gallipoli Peninsula, um, which, you know, is where in the Gallipoli experience began, and um, that's where you lead us. War was like nothing they could have imagined is, in fact, the final page,
1: and um, tell me about that. I... Probably would have been um, the first person to hide my young men in the hills if war had been declared when they were at an age where that was an appropriate, you know, where where they were calling up our young men. You have sons, yes? I have three sons. Yes. I don't want them to go to war. I don't know that war serves um, any – it's just too costly Mm. apart from anything else in Mm. terms of lives and – so when I was asked to write this one, I asked for some time to think about it, and they said there isn't any time. You could have 24 hours. <laughs> so I, in the middle of the night when many revelations come, I woke up and thought I could write how they came to be there, hmm. um, and that way I don't have to fire a gun. Uh, I don't know. How that happened I didn't know the world into which that happened and I was very aware that in pitching that to the publisher that could be the end they could Mm -hmm. say that's not what we want we'll go somewhere else Um, and as it happened they took it to the marketing department and they said that's never been done do it Um, and so I was able to explore the environment into which that war exploded Mm and and Australia's response to it Um, and I still didn't have to fire again.
0: Well, <clears throat> it's actually very effective because, of course, what it does is it acts as a springboard, I guess, for teachers and and students to really say, well, well what did happen? What happened after they got there? And um, I think it's it's really wonderful in that way. Plus it's a it's a lovely slice of Australian history because you give us an insight into ordinary life at that front end and the ordinary men and women who actually you know, ended up going off to fight in the Great War, what they thought was going to be the well in those war days, to end all wars, the war to end all wars, but also the Great Game. Mm. You know, it was really that that still chance that, to travel, that mindset to see the world and to have a great adventure, mm. and with no mm. understanding really um, of
1: what it actually would mean. And I don't know that that's changed. I think there is no preparation for the, mm. the moment of engaging with an enemy when you've got weapons. Yeah, I think that's um, quite true. But these books, are, uh, this series is marketed as being from grade two up mm. and I wanted it to be, I didn't want to be the one that confronted these children without support. And so finishing then also, as you say, allows a teacher, a parent mm. to choose what their particular group of children or individual child um, is able to manage. Yeah, and we'll, what were what? the where they'll go with yes. the story from there. And where there. they'll take it from there.
0: But Weary Dunlop's a very different <laughs> incarnation of this series. And you don't you, you do take us right into the jungles and uh, to the Burma Sion Railway. Um obviously you you give us a lovely biographical history of Dunlop himself, um and I did love the explanation of his name. Um, why he became called Weary, which if you want to know, you'll have to read the book, <laughs> <clears throat> and it's worth reading. It's a really beautifully put together book and, again, extraordinary illustrations, mm-hmm. um, beautifully done. Of course, you don't engage with the atrocities committed by the Japanese during this terrible time, but you do give us enough um, of the hard parts, I think, um, that really highlight. Dunlop's
1: achievements and his contribution. Um, It was a really tricky path to walk, this one. Mm. Um, Trying to honour the men and their suffering, um, trying not to demonise a new generation of readers Mm. against the Japanese, Mm. um, but to represent the conflict in a way that was... Again, not sugarcoating it, but appropriate to a young audience. So I guess what I'm trying to do in most of my books is to ignite a curiosity. I want mm. them to come out at the end with a, I want to know more about that. You, you've you given me enough to make me want to know more. That's what I want to do. So this is a very fine balance. It was in this.
0: It was very tricky. I would have thought, particularly in this book. Mm. Um, so... How long does it take? I mean, you know obviously it's not a lot of words per se,, well, but yeah. research and getting that balance right that must take a long time
1: it does, and the fewer words there there are in a text um, the the more each one of them has to work, mm. the harder each one has mm. to work, and so in condensing. Uh, I mean, for example, in the start of that, his early life, his first 35 years, are condensed into something like 15 words. Mm. Um, but then to go to to sort of show episodes of his time in the, the camps and the different camps and his role mm. um, and to bring them down to their essence, to distill them to their essence but to still accurately portray what happened, Um takes. It is a distillation process. You start with this many words and you come down and you come down and you come down and you come down. And it can be that, uh, you know, one page, one phrase can take you hours or days even once you've got all the information, the, the iceberg of the research behind you coming down to the piece that absolutely must be there to connect the one before and the one after but also to represent the, the situation at that time. It's uh, I do a lot of leaving and probably my best house cleaning happens <laughs> when I'm, <laughs> I'm agonising over the, the actual three words that have to be there and what order they need to be on.
0: I think I read that you once spent hours trying to work out one sentence and then gave it up and then the next
1: day there it was. I spent a whole day working on four words um a four-word sentence um the my editor said not sure about this um and i rearranged them and i rearranged them and i changed them and i threw them out and i put them back in and i walked away and probably cleaned my bathroom and um, possibly even the kitchen floor things were desperate and um came back to swapping the two around and said and she said that's it so that's how long it can take, and that's like that is a dramatic example of it. But that is quite symptomatic of what it's like. Quite that is, limited, that's exactly what it's like. That is extraordinary. Yes, and I, I mean, <laughs> the skill I think is in making it look like it's easy. Um, unfortunately, that means that it it's often very difficult. But I choose it. I love it. I think that's part
0: of the writer's dilemma, though, is mm. that. Writing for, to most of the world doesn't look like work. Yes. And the process of getting those words on the page actually often takes getting up and, you know, hanging out a load of washing or cooking a meal or doing some mundane task because, in fact, the work is all happening in the brain yes. and, and it's, it's, it happens in a variety of ways. Ultimately, of course, you've got to put yourself in the chair mm-hmm. and whether with pen or computer, put the words down. And again, to most people, that doesn't look like work. But any author knows that it is incredibly hard, Mm. incredibly difficult, and even just that word choice. And we've often talked in the book, Cave, uh, to different authors about this. I'm fascinated by the fact that we have this vocabulary in English of about half a million words, but it's that selection. And one writer can take the same vocabulary and put the words in a particular order and produce a particular kind of book and another author will take the same words and the book's completely different. And mm. to me that's it's part of the magic. It is, But yes. it takes tremendous skill and you, you clearly have it, you know. These books come across as fluid and easy, which to me is always a mark of how difficult they are actually to <laughs> create. But I'm fascinated by the lyricism of your writing too, particularly um, – these two books, which I just loved, and particularly Emu, I think. This is a wonderful book. Um, and for anyone who is interested in Australian animals or would love to come to Australia and see these exotic creatures, this is a fantastic introduction to one of my favourites, which is the Emu. And uh, tell us about this book.
1: I start these projects um Wanting to know everything about the animals, mm. um, and I want to know the things that people know about them or mm. think they know about them, and I want to know the things that they don't. So I go into the sort of detail that will never appear in a book, to try and find the essence, to find the language, and to find the voice for these, although they're non-fiction, um, well, narratives, narrative non-fiction. Um, I want to, I want to be. As close as I can get without sort of donning a an emu skin, yeah. <laughs> if you like. Yeah. Um, I want to to know their movements and their natural ways, and and so I immerse myself in their in their store in their you know their every text I can find wherever I can find it. The experts go and watch them. Um, you actually spend time with the with emus watching, watching them, them and... watching them move. Yeah. Mm, they're hilarious. The babies are hilarious. Yeah. Uh, I, when I go into schools, I, I get a child to put their hand in hands inside a, their jumper and then fall over. And once they've fallen over, I tell them I have to get up without using their elbows. And it's <laughs> very difficult, but it shows very clearly what it's like when you're a long, skinny animal that has no wings, no elbows, yeah. and you have to try and get up. And so that awkwardness and that that um helps me sort of understand what it's like to be an animal you know I don't have any aspirations to be an animal, but I want to get close enough that what I'm representing creates the images uh really powerful images of what they how they are how they how they live. Yeah, well, you certainly achieve it. I mean, the
0: emu babies are just beautiful, and of course lots of people don't realise that they're striped when they're born. Um, so they camouflage in the grasslands. And I think wild melons too are striped, and that's another reason for them to be... But,
1: striped. They, but then as they grow taller, yeah, they lose their stripes. And why do they lose their stripes? Because if they had stripes when they're taller than the grass, then it would be a counter-camouflage, yeah, if you like. Yeah. It sort of puts an arrow onto them. So the fact that they change, that is stippled, the description of them as having stippled heads was one of the ones that took me weeks to find the one word that described how their heads look as opposed to the stripes on their body. And it had to be the right word. Stipple. Stipple. Wonderful. I love the word. Well, I'm just
0: going to read a tiny bit, if that's all right, because the language is so beautiful. I love this. Um, For months, Emu and his mate have danced, sung, and wooed each other. Together they have built a leafy ground nest Now she perches next to him and lays a final egg. Then she is gone. Emu gathers the egg under him and gentles down. His hair like feathers are soft and will keep the eggs warm. The eggs are large and strong, but without Emu's care, they will perish long before they are ready to hatch. And I love that gentles down. You can just feel him doing it. And there he is over these wonderful... Dark blue, greeny blue eggs that are like granite to look at. And, of course, it's the male of the pair that will care for the eggs and raise the chicks uh, until they're old enough to be independent. Mm. And that, of course, is one of those wonderful aberrations in the animal world. But you put it together so beautifully. Um, this is a book that all of your books have wonderful illustrators, but this book particularly it's stunning. is stunning. just superb. And I have to show... Our audience, this wonderful <laughs> picture of an eagle <clears throat> flying overhead, and of course we have the shadow—excuse <coughs> me—of the eagle and the chicks running with the with the father and looking like us, feathers. Tell us about that.
1: Uh, the the image and the illustrator. Yeah. Well, the illustration. This is the one I try and purchase one from every one of my books to have on my walls. Mm. And this is the image I chose. Because this one for me has the the movement of of the emus, that they look like feathers. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you sort of come at the image from this level, then you see the the eagle, and then you see the what look like feathers, then you see that the, they are actually the young emus, and then you see their caravanning, the you know, the, mm-hmm. the zigzag pathway and the the epo- almost apocalyptic wildness of, of what's around it, you know, it's like this is the end this could be the end of the world. And and he's just a Graham, his art is just beautiful. Mm. Um mm. and I, I don't pretend to understand how art is made in any sort of sense, but I think this is this is how it's made and this is this is where it goes. And I I love that image particularly. It's superb. The other thing that I love about these, uh, animal books,
0: because you've also done the red kangaroo one, which I love, which I don't have unfortunately, and koala, which we'll talk about in a minute. But I love the fact that you, because it's nonfiction, you tell this gorgeous story, which gives us the, you know, chapter and verse on emus, but in such a lyrical way. But then you have in a different font the actual factual um story of emus and this one of course talks about how they zigzag to confuse predators so i think that's just so clever and you're giving children a story but you're also giving them the the kind of you know scientific historical factual elements as well well
1: hopefully they sort of answer the questions that are generated by the, mm. the so the text the narrative text is from a particular about a particular individual mm. or family and then the other is about the species and so hopefully In reading the, the lyric, the, the um, narrative text, Mm. there will be questions generated which can be answered. And it also means that whoever's sharing this book can make decisions about how much of the story they share, whether they just Mm. read straight through as a narrative or whether they break and, and share the information and add value add um, to the story. That's a gift. Thank you. Was it your idea? Is... No, no, no. This is originally was an English series and there's a couple of American titles. Okay. And the first, Edel, Edel Wigdall did one on um, bilbies and then I came in with Red Kangaroo. Yeah. Um, I, I have a new one, Dingo, coming out oh, at the great. start of
0: next year. Well, I was actually going to ask you because where is um, Wombat, my favourite,
1: and Echidna and Platypus? Platypus is out. Oh, it's Platypus out? Yeah, okay. Platypus has been done. Uh, Sue Whiting wrote that oh, yeah. one and it's illustrated by Mark Jackson and it's very beautiful. Yeah, it would yeah. be. Wombat and Echidna. Um, I pitch one at a time. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think I, I need
0: wombat because that's my favourite. Yeah. So Koala is another very beautiful book but, again, a little bit confronting. Well, one of your you know, don't resile from the difficult aspects of <laughs> being a koala.
1: However, really. koalas sleep for 20 hours a day yeah, and then they eat for the other four. Constructing yes. a dynamic narrative around that required going outside the what we currently know, you know, what we popularly know. So I had to look further.
0: But I love that. It's so oh, clever.
1: I enjoyed finding it.
0: Yeah, yeah. And it's it's it. great. And, but it was a bit sort of... Oh, because, of course, our image of koalas is, you know, beautiful, cute, cuddly, so cute, and they sleep and they eat gum leaves and nothing much else happens. But, in fact, their lives are really challenging. They are. Really? They're really yeah. tough. Yeah, they mm. are. And so interesting, and I didn't know that about their incredibly rainproof fur. Mm. You know, I mean, I've held koalas and padded koalas, but, gee, it was just so much wonderful information and beautifully presented. Thank you. You know, so tell me about the research. How did you do this? Because we're not surrounded by koalas.
1: Um, a lot of reading, a lot of reading, a lot of asking questions of people. Um, there, some of the, I think the books for this one. Some of them I needed to spend time in the state library, which you know is such a terrible hardship. Um, to go through some old books and then match them up with current stuff and see what changes and what doesn't because the level of detail I'm looking for is in like a CSIRO text yeah, about it. Yeah. You know, I want somebody who's done their doctorate on koalas. I want that level of, you know, um, detail. Um, so I, I wade through enormous amounts of material um, and both online and I then check it. On written resources, um, so the the internet is great for most recent stuff. If mm-hmm. you can wade through the the, the dross, the mist, <laughs> um, and written things can be great for detail. Um, and so I do all of those, and then I try and find decide which character, which which animal is going to be my focus character. In this case, it was a young male, mm-hmm. um, and once I've done that, then I try and find a voice, a voice for that character because mm. like any fiction, I need to have a, a sense of how I'm going to tell that story. This one I actually submitted and it was ex- it had been accepted and I met with my editor and she said, this is really great. We could publish this, but we think you you can do it again. We'd like to do it with a different focus. Okay. So yeah. I then started again.
0: So how long did it take you, the first
1: one, Um <laughs> uh, Probably a year. A year? Uh, yeah. And then I didn't have to do the research again. I just had to change the focus of the story. Sure. They wanted me to, they wanted it to be slightly, slightly younger and pared back more. Okay. Um, and so the language in this is slightly um, simpler? Yes. It's probably. But still
0: bit. beautiful. Thank you. One wild night, the wind grows until even the tallest trees sways like a sapling. Koala clings tight, safe and warm as raindrops plomp and plit around him. Oh, I just love those two words. I've never seen plomp and plit before.
1: I, I try and find words that have not been... Mm. Used too much in the particular mm. context, and I will appropriate them to my to my needs and and we- make them sit where they should sit within that. I love doing that bit. That part
0: I can of- see where did you find plomp and plit because it just sounds exactly like raindrops falling.
1: Um, I have a number of thesauruses. Yes, and I trawl looking for words, and sometimes I make them up. Wonderful. Did you make up these words?
0: I'm uh, not sure. I don't think so. Oh, see, I I'll put I've you on them. the spot now.
1: <laughs> yeah, I can't I can't. It doesn't remember. matter. I, no. I, I actually
0: wondered because they're just such wonderful words.
1: I, I think I found them, but I don't know that I've ever seen. Like I found no, them in yeah. a thesaurus of some description yeah. rather than in a – Well, they might be really old. You, yeah, you know, I, I just quite like bringing of- back words that are – but not necessarily if they're the right word. Yeah, yeah. 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 I'm all for that. I, I look, look it's great quite widely for my words.
0: Yeah. Well your your books have a, a definite kind of rhythm and cadence that I think is really effective,
1: you know. So do you read them aloud as you write? Them? Oh yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um and if I can, I prevail upon my long suffering family to because one of the things I find really valuable is having somebody else come at it cold mm-hmm. and read it to me mm-hmm. and I can listen to where they trip because um, I can fudge it because I know you the know way it's supposed coming. to sound yeah, yeah. and so I will read it out loud and I can tell when I'm reading it out loud to somebody often it's better I find more useful to read it out loud to somebody then I can hear where what I'm saying is not quite what I want it to say but if I get a stranger to read it, a stranger to the text Mm-mm. to read it to me, then I see where they trip and I, I can have another look at it. And, and my ideal is if I can get it to a point where a stranger can pick it up and read it and get the cadence right. Lovely. Are you musical? I sing in a choir, but I think saying I was musical would be overstating it. <laughs> you clearly have an ear, though. Uh, for cadence and,
0: yeah. and rhythms and, and things, yes that, yes. that comes through very strongly, which brings us to our last book for the session, not your last book, of course, because you've written more than these. We never have time for all of the books in the book cave. Um, and I thought I had to leave this one to last because, of course, we're heading into the festive season and Christmas at home, which is just delicious because it's it's really Australian and I think that's wonderful and refreshing. So what brought you to write this particular book?
1: Well, that's the third one. The first one was yeah. Christmas at Granddad's Farm, um, and I wanted to write an Australian Christmas mm. one, and I wanted to set it to one of our well-known Christmas songs, I Want It To Be Sung.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, and this one is set to the, the tune of Tannenbaum. Yep. And so that's – it's also an Which comes ex- through without you telling the reader, actually, if you know Tannenbaum. Well, that, that's sort of what I, I want it to do. I don't yeah. sort of want it to hit them over their head. I want them to start reading it and go, I know what I'm saying here. I know I, what I can say. I found I myself, myself mentally reading it along to Tannenbaum, you
0: yes, know, which yes. I thought was wonderful. So the other one is Christmas at Grandma's Beach House. Yes, is which is the 12 days of Christmas. Oh, wonderful, yeah. wonderful. Wow, well, obviously perfect Christmas reading and gift-giving and all of that. So... um Again, your illustrators are also different. Yes. Of course, Koala is illustrated by the wonderful Julie Vivas, who did Possum Magic, yes. and among many other books, and that wonderful Wilfred Gordon MacDonald Partridge, mm-hmm. which is
1: a... Let the celebrations begin. Yeah, and- yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah.
0: yeah. Um, do you have any say in illustrators? or is I
1: any- certainly have more opportunity to at least hear. I don't necessarily... Yeah. Um, get a, a ruling vote as it were. But I'm, I never see what my characters look like unless, you know, Weary Dunlop yeah. needed to look like Weary Dunlop. Yeah. But for the others, I am inside my characters looking out at the world in which they live. And so unless it's relevant for plot, I have no interest in what the characters look like. So I rely on my publishers and editors to, to bring somebody to it. That will have their own vision because I don't give any instruction at all Wonderful. about how it should be, and and I want the magic. I want to, and I want to see what my words conjure for somebody else. So, what's that like receiving? So you you get sent the illustration through the sketches. I often get sketches early, yeah. black and white, colour. Um, sketches first, black and white, um, and then colour. Sometimes a colour print at colour image at the same time. Yeah, or afterwards um oh magical it's always fascinating to see how somebody has illustrated the spaces between the words it's brilliant because they bring their whole other story to it that i can't if i instructed them then it's just my brain and my brain is limited so if we have somebody else's brain and then we've got this brain that puts us together yeah, yeah. and combines it then the combination is much greater than the sum of the parts and that's the magic of picture books well, beautifully said. Beautifully <laughs> said.
0: So um, have you ever had it where you've received illustrations that you've kind of gone, ooh?
1: I had one education title, which was about a boy being scared of deep water. Okay. Um, and the final image, he is convinced to spend some time looking under the surface of the water at a reef when he sees this octopus. The illustration came back with a monster of the deep. <gasps> And so I went back to the publisher and I said, look, I love this image. It's a really nice image. However, it, it fights the text. Mm-hmm. The text, you know, any sensible person would be scared of an animal of this size, rightly so. Um, and not only did they not listen, they put that on the front cover. Um, but that's been really my only <laughs> experience. Okay. Of it being, well, I think every author has to have at least one of Well, those. you know, where this,
0: from such places stories come. <laughs> Well, indeed, that is very true, very true. So do you get more illustrations than the book needs or is it always the exact right number? Do you, And do you get to sort of have a say about where they go or whether there should be something oh, a little
1: different? Or? Uh, well, it varies depending on the publisher. Yep. Um, one book not so long ago there was um, a suggestion the illustrator had done an entire book and the publisher thought that, this image should go back here.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And that image for me was the kickoff point to beyond the book. And so to put it in the middle of the book would have lessened its impact right. for me. But generally, and, and and that's what I said and so did the illustrator and it ended up back where we felt right. it belonged. Yeah. But generally um, I might, if it's, there's not much that I would say I don't think that fits, um, so I didn't. Have, oh, in um, in the kangaroo one, there's an image which is quite an iconic image about uh, kangaroos leaning back on their tail and fighting mm-hmm. another kangaroo. Uh, from my readings, that's actually quite uncommon. And so when this image came with this beautiful big full moon and the kangaroo kicking, um, silhouetted against mm-hmm. it, it does have three fantastic. Female kangaroos sitting at the back going, oh, for goodness sake, they just get old with themselves. <laughs> um, and I loved that part of it, but I, I just, it felt to me that it was perpetuating a an over-representation in the images of kangaroos. Yeah, I'm. yeah. And I fed that back but um, marketing loved it, so it stayed there.
0: <laughs> it happens a lot because people often aren't interested in the factual reality of something. They love those hooks, and that's just, how the world works, you know. I mean, people love to think that, you know, kangaroos do rear back on them and fight each other and a kangaroo can rip a human being in half. That's right. It's much more dramatic. It's much more dramatic and Mm -hmm. interesting and hooky, you know, and that's what tourists like to hear because there's Mm. a little hint of danger. Frisson. Exactly, the the frisson, exactly. So, and speaking of frisson, I have to ask you this because it's so interesting and you may not remember but I'm going to ask (laughs) you You once said that there was some, someone once asked you if you could live in another time, where would you live? And you said you're very happy living in this time. But there were some times you would have liked to have gone back to because there were some people you'd like to give them a good shake. (laughs) And I'm fascinated to know who
1: some of those people might be. I'm assuming they're
0: historical people perhaps or people in books
1: well, certainly in history there's people that you feel like saying, so really, you know, <laughs> maybe maybe you should have another think about that before you do it in public or, oh, um, you know, the benefit of hindsight, it's a wonderful thing. I could go back to my own. <laughs> and there's many times I could do with a decent shake. Um, True think, of all of us, I think. Yeah, I think so. I think so. I think it's... Um, but yes, it would be nice. When you get so close into them, when you're researching um, for a project, you certainly, you know, you think it could life could have been so much different, so much more well, simple. The Gallipoli campaign probably springs to mind well, when you think oh, about oh. how
0: differently that could have been handled.
1: And, I read a number yeah. of diaries because a lot of the diaries are now digitised as part mm. of the War Memorial um, and in Canberra. They have their website's amazing, um, mm. and. I read for the landing, I read the account of a, um, he was a sergeant or a, he was a person who was in charge of other, other men who had been to, I think he had been to the um, Boer War. The Boer War yeah. And I read the account of a young man who was really excited. And there was a third account of somebody who was in charge of others but had never been in that position before. And to contrast Uh, the diaries of those three people or the letters home um, for me was a fascinating thing to sort of, you know, and, you know, yes, could well do with the shakes, some of the people, not necessarily those people, but some of the people who made the decisions. No, absolutely. I think that's true. But you're a great optimist, aren't you? I think so, yes. Um, My mother has called me Pollyanna. Well, that's Before. a compliment. Uh, not or necessarily when she's...
0: <laughs> that's because Pollyanna gets very, uh, very uh, misrepresented. And I'm a great believer in getting people to actually read Pollyanna as a book. Yeah, I, th- I think there's... The story, poor old Polly- Pollyanna, she's always sort of portrayed as some kind of blind optimist yeah. who just always says to people, well, you know, there's always a happy side. But, of course, that's not how she operated at all. No, she simply found some good things in difficult situations to look at, not pretending that the difficult situation wasn't difficult or not there, but just – and when she had her own troubles, she found it incredibly difficult. She found it impossible to find a bright side to her own troubles. And I think that – so, you know, I I always sort of like to stand up for Pollyanna, so I think it's a compliment.
1: I – I think there is always, and and it just means you have to step outside yourself Mm -hmm. and just not see stories about you. They're about a a larger world, and that larger world has other elements in it that um, show you that there is always, that there's good things in your own life. And I think what a great message for children too,
0: you know.
1: Yeah, it's so easy. You know, this particular generation of young people are just so overwhelmed with media and reporting the negative things Mm. and people say that our young people are this and they're that you know my experience of our young people through my children my you know larger family my children's friends my children are all adults Mm. Um, are that they, they're an amazingly resourceful mm. group of people, and they're exactly the people that should be doing the things that they're doing. I
0: completely agree with you. Mm. And this is a joyful book that actually reflects that kind of joyfulness. Families, uh, Christmas, young people, old people, uh, children—you know—all together and just celebrating. You know, different
1: different races, different cultures coming. There's a glorious image in this. Um, it uh, runs through. It's like a running gag going through. Yeah. This is an Inuit.
0: Yes, I I noticed the Eskimo. <laughs> yeah, well she is. Yeah,
1: she's there in a number, and she's the friend from far. Yeah, um, she doesn't take a coat off. She just gets hotter <laughs> and hotter and hotter <laughs> until they find a. Uh, she's, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. On it I until it. they find this little fan to cool her down, <laughs> and you know, and it's one of the things. It's not in the text. None of this is in the text. It's all in the narrative, the visual narrative um, that that goes with it. So clever. Yeah, but wonderful.
0: And, I mean, what a wonderfully joyful, well, you can see. I mean, it's just, you know. And I do think that's a great message to children and to the world, actually. Which really brings us to the end of our wonderful interview in this week's Book Cave. But before we go, we always ask our guest author to contribute verbally Their contribution to our virtual time capsule, our book cave book bin, and you need to tell us the three books that you would leave the world in a time capsule that they could read a thousand years from now.
1: Okay. So I misunderstood a little bit. I thought this was a desert island set of books. Well, effectively it is, I suppose. Well, in that case, my first one would be a dictionary of the sort of size that you have here. Yeah. Um, I have my dictionary is full of um, the origin of words, their time, mm-hmm. um, and on a desert island I'd have the opportunity to look at the which words and when and how and and I think that would be a fantastic thing right. and a time consumer. Um, one of my favourite books as a child was a collection of fairy tales. It was 832 pages um, and it was a collection from many different cultures and there's something in there if I'm feeling like being inspired. There's something in there if I'm feeling like the world is a wicked place um, and there is, you know, there's something for every mood, for everything, and I think that would be something that I would want to have with me. And fairy tales are such wonderful uh, springboards into other sort of stories and imaginations and things. They are. Wonderful. So that sort of would definitely be there. And I think the third one, I have a book called um, Patchwork Prisoners, which is uh, when I was researching My Name is Lizzie Flynn, I had to go to many, many, many different websites to find the elements, like the three databases that I needed to find that told me the age, the crime Mm. and the sentence of the women aboard ship. Um, And this Patchwork Prisoners came out about three or four months after Lizzie Flynn did, and it has everything in there that I would have needed <sighs> oh. to do to write this book. Now, I'm pleased it didn't come out mm. at the same time for a couple of reasons. One is that it um, it would then have been that my book had come out of that book and it didn't. It came out of the same interest. Um, but also because it's an academic text yeah. and Um, I feel quite validated that there's nothing in there that disproves or that suggests that what I've put in there is not accurate. Um, But I'd really like to read it in great depth and in its coherent form, which my research wasn't necessarily, so I would take that with me as well. Wonderful. And a great thing to leave the
0: world to as a, a fabulous sort of inside history into These experiences. So perhaps the world could choose not to repeat them. That would be nice. Well, you might have enough time to memorise your dictionary. (laughs) (laughs) Certainly the world will need a dictionary in a thousand years from now. Indeed. I think that's very true. Well, Claire Saxby, it's been an absolute pleasure and a delight having you in the book cave. Thank you, Jen. Thank you so much for coming in. It's been great. In the Book Cave was recorded at the Matts, With the assistance of 94.7 FM Geelong and produced by Corner Shop Studios, Jam Lab and Creative Geelong.